Romans chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 15. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself might be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Um, it'd be great if you could have that passage open in front of you as we go through. Uh, it's really helpful to have the Bible uh, there so you can see the, the text um, as we work our way through it. Let me pray. We've got a great passage this evening for an Easter Sunday, not a Christmas, but an Easter Sunday, and uh, it's going to be good for us to see it together. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the hope that it gives to humanity, and we pray now that as we look at this wonderful part of your word, you would take your word and you would plant it deep in our hearts, that you might transform us, that you might change us to become like your son Jesus, and that you might cause us to wait patiently for the glory that is coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's a, here's a quote to begin with. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's a quote from the book River Out of Eden by celebrity atheist Richard Dawkins. He's speaking about suffering. He believes that suffering is natural and says effectively there's no reason for it and no explanation for it really. There's absolutely no purpose to it and there's no justice in it. If you suffer more than someone else, 
Or if your life just happens to be full of suffering, well, that's just plain bad luck. The creator in his worldview, the universe, simply does not care one bit about you. Pitiless indifference. Now, at least he fronts up to the stark and awful reality of suffering in this world. That could be said for him. He's real about its awfulness. But if you really and honestly come to face up to what he teaches, if you believe that, that we live, suffer, die, and none of it has any lasting purpose, well, surely that leads you to misery and despair, if you're honest, that is. In the face of suffering, atheism offers no ultimate hope for humanity. All that's left is that you must just attempt to avoid suffering as best you can, while you can, at least until it gets you in the end. But does Christianity offer hope for humanity, real hope for humanity? What does Christianity say about suffering? Well, the Bible gives a very nuanced understanding of suffering. It teaches that suffering is very real and very awful. It fronts up to the reality of it and it mourns. This is a book full of tears. The Bible teaches that suffering is sometimes just, that sometimes we get what we deserve, but it's often unjust that, good, uh, that bad things happen to good people. The Bible teaches that sometimes we will know why we're suffering, but that at other times, in fact most of the time, we won't understand why, and that we will never understand why. Yet, of course, at the heart of Christianity, the great truth is that God did not stand aloof from suffering as if he did not care. Rather, he cared so much about the suffering of this world that he entered into it as the man, Jesus Christ, that he himself suffered with us and for us to rescue us. There's no pitiless indifference with Jesus Christ. But the scriptures also teach something else about suffering, and it's radical. And Paul teaches it here in Romans 8, verse 18. He says that the sufferings of this present life are entirely outweighed by the glory that is coming. Listen to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is a bold statement, isn't it? I mean, can that, can that really be true? That all the suffering of this world, the sicknesses, the stress, the sorrows, the pain, and yes, for the Christian, the persecution of following Jesus, all that is completely outweighed by the glory that's ahead of us. Not worth comparing even, Paul says, with the glory that's to be revealed. One preacher 
put it like this. If you took all the sufferings of the universe throughout time and you dumped it on the scales, can you imagine how heavy the glory must be to make that suffering seem as light as a feather? It would have to be pretty weighty, wouldn't it? This is a remarkable statement that Paul says here. And we need to begin with the why question. Why does Paul say this to us? Let me fill you in a bit of what's going on in the letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1 through to chapter 6, Paul has systematically taught through the Christian gospel. And he's begun with the bad news. He's shown that all human beings are wicked and that God is right to judge us for our sin. And then he shows that no amount of good deeds can make up for our disobedience, our rebellion against God, that we are justly facing an eternal punishment in hell. That's the bad news. But then he begins to unfold for us the salvation that's been made possible through the Easter story, that God has provided a way of salvation from that judgment, and that that way is simple. It is through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death in our place, and his defeat of sin and death and Satan as he rises again. That's chapters 1 to 6. Then in chapters 7 and chapter 8, he begins to explore the experience of the Christian life. And in particular, he's dealing with two struggles that Christians face. Two struggles which we face which can lead us to lose our assurance that we're truly saved. This is all about assurance. That's what this section is dealing with. That's the big theme. That's why he says what he says here. The first thing that rattles our assurance of our salvation is our struggle with sin. And I'm sure that if you're a Christian, you recognise This, that you're asking this question, does the fact that I still sin as a Christian mean that I'm not really saved? No, Paul answers. The struggle with sin, it remains as a normal part of the Christian life while we're still alive. Of course, it's a part that we long to be removed from us, and it will be one day, but not yet. Paul emphatically states in in chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no longer any condemnation for us in Christ, that Christ has truly paid for our sins and as proof he's given us his Holy Spirit who reassures us that we truly are forgiven and who assures us that we are children of God, adopted into God's family. We have assurance despite our struggle, our ongoing struggle with sin. That's been his point in the first part of chapter 8. Now we come to the second issue which can affect our assurance in this second half of chapter 8. And the second struggle is with suffering. I'm sure, again, this feels familiar for us. When we suffer, what happens is that we often start to doubt, don't we? In particular, we start to wonder whether God really loves us. We find ourselves thinking, you know, if, if God really loved me, then this wouldn't be happening to me. If God really loved us, this wouldn't be happening to us. That's what we start to think. And Paul wants to assure us again 
that our struggle with suffering is a normal part of life in this world, the Christian life. It's to be expected as long as we live here. Now, Paul was all too aware of that in his own life, and he'd already broached the topic in the previous verse, in verse 17. But now he wants to show us that that though we groan in our suffering now, that's part of our experience now, our suffering is not without hope because there is a glory coming, a future glory that far outweighs it. And that promise in turn is going to reassure us that God really does love us. The passage that we've got and that we've had read is structured around three different groans. And you'll see that as we go through the passage. There's a handout um, attached to the web web page and under the YouTube link. Um, Or if you're making notes, um, get ready for three different groans. The first is in verse 19 to 22. Everything and everyone groans for freedom from the curse. Paul begins with the big picture, the creation, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's something wrong with the world. I don't have to persuade you very hard and to believe that that is true. Of course, as we look out on God's creation, we see lots of things that are, that are wonderful, are beautiful, we enjoy, much that we enjoy. But at the same time, there can be little doubt that things have gone wrong, that the world is broken, that it's not as it should be. We all feel that. And we feel that keenly, don't we, at this time? Here's the Bible's reason for why the world is as it is. It's under curse. Paul's referring here to Genesis chapter 3. We'd see there that the creation is subjected to the curse because of humanity's rebellion against God. It's rejection of his rule. The entire creation, and we as humans, as as part of that creation, have been put under his judgment, his curse. Creation subject to futility and under bondage to corruption, as Paul says here. And doesn't that do a good job of explaining what we see in the world around us? Don't you recognise that? Futility and corruption, frustration and decay. Tsunamis, landslides, erosion, fractures, earthquakes, radiation, rot, toxicity, and yes, pandemics and death. The world is groaning. What's the answer? Well, some at the more extreme end of things would say, well, the answer's clear. The answer's to get rid of all human beings, isn't it? I mean, after all, the human beings are the ones causing the problem. I wonder if you saw those pictures of the Venice canals just a couple of weeks after um, the lockdown in Italy. 
saw fresh water and you saw fish again swimming in the canals. Or maybe you've seen those satellite um, images of the pollution across the world, those pollution maps. They're suddenly clear now that the factories have stopped working and the planes are grounded. And people have commented, they said, look, this proves it, it shows you that human beings are the problem. And the sort of eco-warrior type would say, well, if we got rid of humans, then the world would be right again. Now, there's some truth there. The cause is correct, that human beings are the problem. Genesis chapter 3 would tell us that. But the solution there is wrong. Look at verse 19. Look at what Paul says the creation longs for in verse 19. It longs, literally it cranes its neck to see not humanity removed, but humanity revealed. The revealing of the sons of God. It hopes not for the eradication of humanity, but for the freedom of the glory of the children of God to be realised, verse 21. You see, creation's groans are not death throes, they're labour pains. The groans of creation, they don't signal the end, they signal the beginning, the beginning of new life. The world will be set right once God's children are fully renewed as they should be. Only then will the curse be lifted. Only then will blessing be restored. Will the creation function as it should when those who have trusted in Christ are glorified, that is, they're shown as they truly are and made perfect as God has promised. Then and only then will the world begin to run properly as the human beings God made begin to run it properly as he'd intended way back in the beginning when he made them. All creation groans, everything and everyone groans, longing for that day, whether they know it or not, in the hope of that day. And that day will come, says Paul. The day will come when everything is set right. And in fact, not just set right, but beautified, perfected. All the current experience will be totally outshone, just as labour pains are outshone when you hold that newborn in your arms. So the groaning of creation will turn to laughter and shouts of joy as the children of God are transformed into the glory, a new glory, and begin to rule over a new world. That's the first groan. If we listen carefully, we can hear a second groaning. Not only does the creation groan, but we as believers, we groan too. We groan with creation for the full experience of our salvation. Verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
Now, let's, um, let's talk football for a moment. Uh, there's something of uh, waiting for glory going on at the moment. Liverpool have not won the English Premier League for 30 years. That's uh, a fact that many people like myself like to remind their fans of. And now, when the season was called off in March, uh, Liverpool were sitting at the top of the table. They were 25 points clear um, with just a few games to go. The glory's certainly coming, isn't it? But for now, they must wait. They've tasted it, but they're longing for the full experience of it. And that wait, if you're a Liverpool fan, must be pretty frustrating, I'd imagine. And you don't know how long that wait's going to go on, which makes it even harder. But you must cling to the hope that the wait, no matter how long it is, will be worth it when it comes. And that's often how the Christian feels, isn't it? Jesus Christ took our sin into himself. He suffered, he died, he was buried and he rose from death at Easter time. And when he rose from death, he was given a new and glorious resurrection body, one which was free from our sin, one free from the effects of the curse, one that was perfect. And he has ascended into heaven and he's received his glory. He's receiving it now. Now through faith in Jesus, we are united to him in his death, his burial and his resurrection. And we as believers in Jesus, we're given a taste of that glory now by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. That glory that he's won on our behalf, that glory that he's now receiving, Paul says that's going to be ours shortly also. That's the hope of the church. That's the hope in which we are saved, says Paul. That full experience of our salvation, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, that transforming glory is not yet ours. We've just had a taste, but one day it will be. We can't see it yet, but we hope for it and we wait patiently for it because Christ has already achieved it and because he promises to share it with us, our hope will not disappoint us. In the meantime, we groan, don't we? Don't we groan? Don't we long for that day when we will see our Father face to face and be transformed? when we will truly know all the wonderful blessings of being part of the family of God. And don't we long for that day when we'll be given glorious new bodies that he'll give us when he returns and raises us from the dead. Don't you long for a body that will never break down, that will never decay, that will never fail, that will never get sick, that will never die? That day of glory is coming, says Paul. And here's the thing. The glory of that experience that awaits us will far outweigh the suffering of our present experience. The American pastor Tim Keller, in his wonderful book on suffering, writes this of that experience that we will share one day. The most rapturous delights you have ever had in the beauty of a landscape or in the pleasure of food 
or in the fulfilment of a loving embrace, are like dewdrops compared to the bottomless ocean of joy that it will be to see God face to face. That is what we are in for, nothing less. And according to the Bible, that glorious beauty and our enjoyment of it has been immeasurably enhanced by Christ's redemption of us from evil and death. Do you see? Paul's statement of verse 18, that astonishing statement, only makes sense if the glory that's coming is of a different kind. We just taste it now, the first fruits, but when it comes, it will be worth the wait. So creation groans. We groan as believers. But there's one more groaner in our passage. I wonder if you spotted him on the reading. He's a surprising groaner, I think. Verse 26 to 30, the Spirit groans with believers for our glorification. Paul when he writes this, he doesn't write it lightly. Paul knew suffering. He himself faced some of the most horrendous suffering in his personal circumstances during his lifetime. And it's worth recognising too that as he writes this, he lived in really a far more brutal world than the one we currently live in. War and plague and famine, they were all too prevalent in the Roman world. And then of course, for him particularly, but for the church Um, as well, as a whole, there was the particular Christian suffering, wasn't there, of persecution and the ever-present threat in the lives of Christian believers. In the face of all that, Paul was very clear that he felt very weak. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he'd write this of his experience in chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Suffering leaves us feeling weak, doesn't it? It leaves us at the end of ourselves. It leaves us groaning inwardly. And maybe as you look back over your life, you can see times when you really were there. And it may be that you're there right now. Maybe you feel like Bilbo felt in that story. He said, I feel thin, sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. I felt like that before. When we feel like that, when our weakness is all too evident, one of the common experiences of the Christian is that we 
we forget to pray. We forget how to pray. We can't pray. Our, our words, they don't, they don't come out right. We stumble. We can't concentrate. We don't feel like we can summon the energy. And of course, that's really dangerous for us, isn't it? Because we know that that time is when we need to pray the most. But we don't know how to pray. What does Paul say? We don't know what to pray for as we ought. Well, there's a tremendous comfort for us here, isn't there? Verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In our suffering, God the Spirit is praying to God the Father on behalf of those rescued by God the Son. He's praying for us in our weakness. And is he heard? Is he answered? Well, of course, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, for he's always praying for us according to the will of God. Now, what an astonishing comfort that is. And that may well be, I suspect, exactly what you need to hear right now. There are many of us who are feeling weak, who are feeling too weak to pray, who are groaning in weakness, unable to lift our heads, unable to talk to our Father. Know this, brother, know this, sister, that the Spirit of God in you is praying for you, that God's will be done in your life. What is God's will? What is the Spirit praying for? Well, Paul tells us in the final verses of our passage in verse 28 to 30. Let me read these wonderful verses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God the Holy Spirit is praying for nothing less than our glorification. That's where that long sentence lands. And do you notice how Paul writes this with such confidence? He writes it in the past tense because it's as sure to happen as if it already has. The Spirit is praying for believers that through the present suffering we finally and perfectly will be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ and that, that glorious image that I will one day be made like Jesus is the glory that makes the suffering of this life not worth comparing. When we get that, this will seem like nothing at all. It will be a glory that outshines the darkest of days. 
We're coming to a close. It might be that for you, you're, you're looking around and you're still thinking, really? Can this really be true? Can verse 28 really be true that for those who love God, all things work together for good? I found it can be very easy to doubt that that's true, especially if we're in the middle of dark days. Well, let's remember that we're not God and that we don't yet see the whole picture of what he's doing. A couple of years ago we took a family holiday and one of our trips was to go uh, to a museum and have a look around. We persuaded the children that was worth doing. Um, They took quite a lot of persuading. I'm not sure they were convinced by the end. Um, But there was one particular room in the museum that that caught my attention. We we walked through this this kind of long dark corridor. It was a a long gallery and the room had to be kept dark. The, The sort of lady standing there told us because it was, had to prevent the sunlight from fading the images. As on the walls, there were these vast and beautiful tapestries from floor to ceiling. They must have been 15 feet high, 15 feet long. Amazing, incredible, the amount of time and work uh, that must have gone into making them. And many of them were actually of biblical stories. And so it was, it was kind of cool with the kids. We could try and work out who was who and which stories they recognised. I remember there was one of Daniel and the lions... Now, with tapestries, you only ever see the front. In fact, you'd only ever want to see the front because the back is a mess. The back is, is all the broken and cut threads. It, it doesn't have any discernible patterns. It has no images to admire. See, if we, when we walked through that, that long corridor, if those tapestries, tapestries had been displayed the wrong way round, well, we'd have thought, this looks terrible we'd have thought it made no sense at all. And we'd have thought that the artist had no idea what they were doing. When Paul says, as he does in verse 28, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, that is a statement of trust that he is creating a glorious masterpiece that will one day be revealed... It's just that at the moment there's a real sense that we only ever see the back, the underside. It looks a mess to us sometimes, but if we will just wait, if we will patiently wait to see the full picture, the glory to be revealed, then we will be blown away. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian woman and when she was a girl she lived through the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands, her homeland, in World War II and her family famously hid Jewish people in their house while the SS was knocking on the door. She knew suffering. In truth, she knew far more suffering than most of us will ever know. As we close, let me read a poem to you that she wrote called The Master Weaver's Plan. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent, 
and the shuttles cease to fly? Will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why? The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you work things for good for those who love you. And yet, Lord, we live in the middle of a groaning world as groaning people longing for the day when everything will be set right. And more than that, when your glory will be revealed to us and in us. Help us, we pray, to patiently wait for that day, trusting you that you are doing something of amazing beauty that will blow us all away. Help us, we pray, to cling to you until that day. And we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has secured that day for us. In his name we pray. Amen.